Hello there. Servus. My name is Haishan Wade, and you're listening to This Week in Geopolitics, where we take a look at the events of yesterday and detail how they paint the geopolitical realities of today. And what do I got for you today? Well, we're going to talk about Saudi Arabia joining BRICS+. Plus. We're going to talk about the Nashville shooting a little bit more in depth than last time. And then we're going to talk about this idea being floated in the EU of sending peacekeepers into Ukraine. All that and more coming up. Let's get into the rapid fire news. So we have Russian forces fighting in central Bakhmut. Uh, they are capturing more and more of the city as time goes on. They're going block by block. And it appears that they're close to capturing Adayevka as well. And you know what? You know what? Let, let me get my, my trusty, dusty Google Earth. Let's see where Adayevka is. Because I could tell you that they're ready to take the city. But I imagine that most of you don't know where that city is. And I'll be honest with you, neither do I. So, let's look. Let's look. It's going to find a oh, Bakhmut. Bakhmut. Ah, there we go. Well, there's Bakhmut. In the Donetsk, which is in eastern Ukraine, just north of Donetsk. You know, where is Adayevka? Oh, I can even see Krasnaya Gora. So, and I've heard talk that they're taking Krasnaya Gora as well. Krasnaya Gora to the north. Solidar was, they, they took that a while ago. That's to the northeast of the city. So now, where is Adayevka? Mikhailovka is in the south. You know, now that I'm finally looking at a map of this, because uh, I sort of avoided looking at the map for a while. Now that I see it, I see trouble for the Ukrainians. You know, I mean, we've known that they've been in trouble for a while, but seeing it has been uh, enlightening. I'll say that much. But, uh, yeah. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> I forgot. I forgot I was supposed to be looking for Adevka. My goodness. And it is. Adevka is. Oh, it's much, much further south. That's not the Battle of Bakhmut. That's north of Donetsk City. Wow. So it appears that the Russians are not just attacking in Donbass, but they're attacking all across the Donbass region. Oh, did I say Donbass? They're not just fighting in Bakhmut. They're fighting across the entire Donbass region, and they're on the offense across the entire Donbass region. We've been so hyper-focused on, you know, Bakhmut. And here they are at Krasnaya, not Krasnaya, Gora. They already fought there, but here we are at Adeyevka, and that's right north of Donetsk. So they're pushing across this entire front. We'll see if this coming Ukrainian counteroffensive that we're hearing so much about 
de targets this city again, you know, Adeyevka and Donetsk, the capital of the Donetsk People's Republic, well, the former People's Republic, because they're now part of the Russian Federation, but it'll be interesting to see what direction this Ukrainian counteroffensive moves in, if it happens, because we went over how Zelensky himself is afraid to even say the words counteroffensive, and it's understandable why. I mean, it took him long enough. I think, I think he's sort of coming down from that delusional high he was on last winter, where he was talking about he didn't know if Putin was alive or not, and he was still believing that his troops were in Solidar. No, 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 no. I, th I think he's come down from the denial, and the reality is sort of uh, weighing down on him, and because he was in denial, or at least it appeared he was in denial for so long, those past few months, it seems that now he's he almost doesn't know what to do with himself. Like, he knows that he has to keep fighting in order to get support from the West. But the reality has set in, and it's, oh my goodness, if I keep fighting, there's, no, there's not going to be anything left to fight with. So that's what it looks like is happening here. So I expect that we're just going to continue watching the Russians spam artillery on the Ukrainians for the next few weeks. And potentially a Ukrainian offensive materializes. I imagine they're going to be slaughtered. That's how I think this is going to go. It'll be tragic to watch. And the people responsible for it will pretend that they were not. So that's how I think this is going to go. Uh, while we're still on the topic of Russia, Ukraine, and the war, we have Belarus accusing Poland of contemplating an invasion of the country. They're accusing Poland of preparing for an invasion of Belarus. And when we get to our latest story, which is that of a peacekeeper idea being floated, perhaps the Belarusians aren't wrong to be skeptical, especially when you consider the, the very, very recent history between them and Poland, where Poland has been trying to build an army, this 300,000-strong army, specifically for an intervention in Ukraine. Or, well, they don't say that, but they're talking about building an army 300,000 strong, which is double the size of the current Polish army. And then even before that, in 2020, when the elections happened in Belarus and there was the attempted overthrow of Lukashenko, Poland said that the election was illegitimate, and then they, along with Lithuania, went and recognized the opposition. And Lithuania even went as far as to raise the flag of the opposition in their embassy. Excuse me. So, it's not too far-fetched for Belarus to be suspicious of Poland. And it's not entirely out of character for Poland to be amassing troops there who... But I don't think Poland was going to start a war with Belarus. If anything, if anything, what's going to start the war is going to be these peacekeepers. But we'll, we'll talk more about that later on. We have Russia expelling Latvian and Estonian diplomats from Russia. We have a ferry fire in the Philippines, which killed 31 and left a number of others missing or wounded. That's a tragedy. And we have another tragedy, which is another train derailment, except this time in Minnesota which has spilled ethanol and corn syrup. Uh, also, the train caught fire. I don't know why our trains keep catching fire. That seems rather suspicious to me. 
how all of a sudden we have these derailments popping up everywhere. And they all seem to happen to catch fire. It just seems very odd that they all go out the same way. They don't just they don't just fall. It's not enough to just fall over. It's not enough for the brakes to, to fail. Although the brakes in the, the last train didn't fail, it was, you know, the bearings caught fire and then the train tipped over. And I'm talking about the one in East Palestine. But very strange that this is popping up in the news now. We have Turkey's parliament ratifying Finland's membership in NATO after nearly a year of waiting. Uh, Sweden is still waiting. We'll see if they get ratified or if Turkey squeezes some more concessions out of them before they do. And we have the BRICS discussing a new currency. Now, this is something I thought that Russia was, not Russia necessarily, but Putin and Xi, the summit they had, this is something I thought they were going to be discussing at that summit. And I said that they would definitely be talking about the BRICS and the future of the BRICS and the direction they wanted to take it in. And part of that future might have been a a BRICS currency. And for a moment, I thought that they had sort of left that idea alone because they had agreed to doing deals in yuan and rubles. But here, they're talking about a BRICS currency, except it's going to be brought up at the next BRICS summit, which I believe is going to be in South Africa. So here it is. Now, it's not a thing yet. It's not a thing yet. They're going to be discussing it. And even then, they, that doesn't mean they're going to be, reach an agreement on it this coming summit. It might take a few summits. But these summits do happen rather frequently. So it's not too far out of the question to say that we could be looking at a BRICS currency having the foundations laid for it in the coming days. And perhaps in the coming months, we might actually see the currency start to get rolled out, depending on how fast they want to take this. I mean... The international scene is changing incredibly fast, so I imagine that there is a sense of urgency here, especially when you see the other moves being made that are just absolutely demolishing the dollar, and we'll get into that with Saudi Arabia joining the BRICS, uh, actually BRICS Plus, like I thought. I had a feeling they would name it BRICS Plus with all these new members coming in, uh, but now we have, it's official now, it's BRICS Plus now. So we have that. With the UAE president, and saying, and this is astonishing, and he said this when he was hosting a certain someone in his country, he says it's time for the Syrians to return to their Arab family, and he said this during a visit from Assad. A visit from Bushar al-Assad, the president of Syria, to the UAE. So not only do we have Arabia recognizing Syria, not only do we have Turkey recognizing Syria and Russia brokering the deal there, not only do we have Iran and Arabia making peace, you know, ending the little Cold War going on between them, not only do we have all these countries recognizing Syria and peace being, now we have the UAE recognizing Syria. Peace in the Middle East, at least between the the major political entities, the, perhaps the militant groups and the terrorists will keep fighting. But in terms of the countries themselves, peace in the Middle East is rapidly becoming a reality. 
And Syria is going to be a big winner of this. Syria is going to be a big winner. And let's be real. The reason the UAE is doing this is because of Arabia. Arabia has been in the midst of reconfiguring its position in the region for the past few years. And we recognize that Iran is the dominant power of the region. Iran is the dominant power of the region. Arabia has been reconfiguring itself and trying to de-escalate and have a detente with Iran and have a rapprochement with Iran. And the culmination of that was the deal brokered between them and Iran, uh, brokered by China, where they reopened their embassies. And here we have the UAE following suit, and now they're recognizing Assad as the rightful government in Syria, just as Arabia did a few months ago. So that's a pretty big deal. Then we have ASEAN floating the idea of phasing out Visa card, and, uh, not Visa card, uh, phasing out Visa and MasterCard, in addition to moving towards trade denominated in local currencies. And given that China is the biggest trade partner of all of them, I'd imagine that a good deal of that trade in local currencies will just be done in Yuan as an intermediary, as a very convenient intermediary, because everyone there has Yuan. Because everyone there does trade with China. And that's another big, big, big move when you're looking at Southeast Asia now, moving away from the dollar in a different way, moving away from the banking system. And I imagine that moving away from the banking system is also going to be something else happening in the rest of the world as well. But in the Middle East, you see moves to break the petrodollar. And then here in Southeast Asia, you have moves to break the banking monopoly that the West has over the world. All this is going to lead to a depression in the United States. There's, it's sort of unavoidable. We're going to have a depression in the United States. Uh, and, and that's what happens when you outsource the value of your currency. But this is huge. We are witnessing history. We are witnessing history. Now, we'll see how this phasing out goes because it's a phasing out, not a cutting off. So we do have time to adjust. But will we with all these banks failing? Oh my goodness, this might cause more banks to fail. I didn't think about that. So we'll see how we do with this. And then on uh, the last bit of news we have for this segment, we have Trump being indicted in the Stormy Daniels case. I repeat, the indictment has been issued and our glorious leader's re-election has now been assured. Now, me personally, I'd like to thank the grand jury and the Manhattan District Attorney for their tireless efforts in Trump's re-election campaign. I would also like to thank the fake news and the Biden administration for their efforts as well. Thank you. We couldn't have done it without you, and the best is yet to come. But now, we'll move on to the meat of this episode in just a moment. All right, let's get into the meat of this episode, and we'll start with Saudi Arabia joining the BRICS Plus. And I'll just start this segment off by saying, this is it. This is it. This is the end of the petrodollar. This is the end of the petrodollar. Because we talked in, well, just a minute ago, about how BRICS was going to talk about setting up a BRICS currency at their next meeting in South Africa. A BRICS currency... 
and Saudi Arabia joining the BRICS by definition mean that Saudi Arabia is no longer going to be exclusively doing deals in U.S. dollar. They're not already. They've made a deal with China for China to buy oil in yuan. So you combine China buying oil in yuan with any one of the BRICS member nations, which are now more than the original five, counting Saudi Arabia and I believe Venezuela applied, Arabia, well, not well, yeah, Arabia applied. I believe Iran applied. A number of countries have applied. So if there is simultaneously China being able to buy oil in yuan from Saudi Arabia and a BRICS currency that all the BRICS plus members will presumably have access to, which would include Saudi Arabia now that they are joining and they, sh I believe that they're officially going to be joining in August of this year. That's huge. And that's it. It's a done deal. The petrodollar is dead. The petrodollar is dead. Or well, it has a few months left to live. Uh, I'll say that much. Uh, yeah. But uh, for all intents and purposes, it's dead. It's dead. If Saudi Arabia is a part of BRICS and BRICS has a currency that all the members can use and probably even other countries as well, it doesn't necessarily have to be limited to the BRICS. If other countries want to use the currency, I'm sure that they'll try to get their hands on it. Everybody does trade in China. So if China has this BRICS currency, everyone's buying energy from Russia and Arabia. So if they both have this currency, this currency is going to spread like wildfire. Because all the commodities producers, Russia, Arabia, Brazil, they're going to have this currency. China, the biggest manufacturer on the planet and the end market for a lot of other people's goods, they're going to have this currency. So from a supply and demand side, this currency is just set to explode. If it comes into being, slash when it comes into being, but if it does come into being, Saudi Arabia is a part of the BRICS. That means that they can accept yuan, they can accept the BRICS currency, whatever they choose to call it. And if they're accepting, if they're accepting two other currencies for their oil, well, then that automatically means that the U.S. dollar is not exclusive with Arabian oil. You don't need to pay for their oil in U.S. dollars anymore, and that kills the petrodollar. The petrodollar dies. Because it's not like Saudi Arabia is going to be by themselves in this. Every other commodities producer, in the middle, certainly in the Middle East, after our 20 years of uh, fuckery there, they're all going to want their hands on this currency too because they all do trade with China as well. China's a massive market. And just from multiple angles, you can see that this currency, if, and I believe when, I believe they're, they're, I believe they're going to do it. If it comes into being, it's going to immediately oust the dollar as the reserve currency. Immediately. Because everyone's looking for alternatives right now. That's why you see trade within local currencies becoming all the rage right now. Now imagine you combine trade in local currencies with the, the, the option of doing trade in a BRICS currency. Something that you know your main commodities supplier and uh, consumer are going to have. And when you're looking at Russia, Brazil... Arabia as suppliers and China as a consumer, India as a consumer even, because India is a part of the BRICS too. What reason do you have not to get the BRICS currency? Like, it's going to replace the dollar. 
the second it comes into being, everybody who's looking for an alternative will make the switch. Because with the BRICS currency, you're not going to get canceled because some <laughs> some bum in the United States doesn't like who your government is. They don't like the results of your election. They don't think that you're legitimately elected because they don't like you. Oh, oh, you, you did something we don't approve of? Well, we're, we're going to freeze your accounts. We're going we're gonna to hit you with sanctions. We're going to hit you with the mother of all sanctions because you joined this war that we provoked for eight years. No one wants to deal with that. And the second an alternative is made available, and it is that time is rapidly approaching, they're going to make the jump. They're looking for the alternatives now. They're already making deals in local currencies now. It's a hassle. But at this point, because of all these sanctions and trade restrictions that we've put on doing deals with the dollar, in some cases, it's going to end up being cheaper because you don't have to go through a third party to get dollars. You don't have to go through our banking system, SWIFT. You don't have to do that. You can use SIPS, the, the Chinese equivalent of uh, SWIFT, except it has, what, 10 times more capacity? Or, or is it 20? More like, it was like some ridiculous number in the trillions in trade and financial transactions going through it. It was huge, way bigger than SWIFT. And so they'll just use that. They'll use the Russian uh, interbank communication system. I forget what the name of that one is. But they're going to use every alternative they can get their hands on. And it's going to be Russia and China. Russia and China are at the forefront of this. They're the ones bringing this into being. They are the leaders of this multipolar world. And here, with this new reserve currency, it's not going to be any different. It's going to be Russia and China all the way. But with Saudi Arabia joining, the, the quintessential nation for the existence of a petrodollar joining this as well, it's that, that's it. That's it. It's the it will guarantee the death of the petrodollar, certainly by the time we get to election year. I imagine the dollar is going to be in really dire straits, really, really dire straits, because I, I don't see people doing anything on this side to do anything about it. Like, and I, and I said this in my first anniversary episode that it was time to return to the gold standard anyway. And I've said that just off the merits of how much our currency has declined in its value since we started moving away from the gold standard, which roughly correlated with uh, the after 1900. After 1900, you get the establishment of the, the Fed in 1913, that disgusting, filthy institution. And then in the 1930s with the Great Depression, you have Roosevelt Roosevelt, saying you have to give the government all your gold. It's you, You're not allowed to own gold anymore, so you have to give the, the government. And then when he gets all the gold, he just, by the stroke of a pen, these people just raised, artificially raised the price of gold. And now, well, look at that. We have all this extra money. It's like, okay, and we want to get into how the Fed was just pumping money into the economy during the 20s, which played a massive role in the, the stock market crash in 29. Like, these people have never been good for us. This system of central banking never meshes well with the American economy. That's why we abolished the Fed. Well, the other two central banks, not necessarily the Fed, but we abolished them twice. 
And it looks like we're on track to abolishing them their ass a third time. And I can't wait for that. And look, we didn't we didn't have an income tax until the Fed came around. So without the Fed, without debt, without an income tax, we can have some real growth in this country. And perhaps a fiscally responsible government. But I said it based on the value, the decline in the value of our money. Like we went, we went from having in 1900, the dollar, it was so powerful that 35 bucks could get you an ounce of gold. Today, you're, you're easily talking around $2,000. You, you can run the calculator. There's calculators online you can do. And if you take a dollar from 2020, right? Because I ran, I initially ran this calculation back in like 2021, so we didn't necessarily have the hard stats for what the dollar was worth in 2021 because the year wasn't over yet. So I went with 2020. If you take a dollar from 2020 and you compare it to a dollar from 1900, a dollar in 2020 would have only been worth three pennies in 1900. Three pennies. And I said this in my anniversary episode, my first one. So why would we hold on to this system, this institution of fiat money, of central banking, where they just print money with this modern monetary trash? Well, why would we hold on to the petrodollar when all they've done is sabotage the value of our currency? Like, why would we do that? What use do we get out of that? We get nothing other than an economic incentive to stay involved in other people's countries. Like some people, some economists might say, oh, having a, a softer dollar means it's it's easier for other people to buy our goods. Well, America has always, and I do mean always, even from the moment we were a colony to the 1900s, we have always been an importing nation. The reason we had so many exports is because we had economy of scale. We had mass production. The cost of goods came down through mass production and people were able to buy them but we had to import a lot of the materials to make it we've always been an importing nation and we use those imports to make new things that other people want to buy america's always been an importing nation and we consume a lot of what we produce anyway so having a strong dollar helps us to buy goods from overseas to produce manufactured goods here and having a strong dollar here means that people are able to buy the goods that we produce here, which creates a strong domestic market. That's the American system right there. Nah, so losing the value of our currency every year is just not in our interest. People, uh, these people on TV, these economists, and this is a, a typical line where they'll say, oh, if, if the economy only... If the economy only has 2 to 3% inflation every year, that's good. That's healthy. No, it's not. You lost. If you have 2 to 3% inflation, that means you lost 2 to 3% of your currency's value. And you're talking about this year after year after year after year. It's no wonder why a, a dollar in 2020 was worth three pennies in 1900. It's no wonder why when we have, when we have that as our accepted political philosophy on monetary policy, Oh, if we only lose two to three percent of the value, it's okay. No, when are we gonna get the two to three percent back? I don't hear anyone advocating for two to three percent deflation the next year. No, it's just constant inflation. That's why prices only ever go up. 
That's why they only ever go up. Look at candy. People used to go into candy shops with nickels, pennies, and dimes and walk out with whole jars full of sweets. Now you, you'll be hard-pressed to find anything worth less than a dollar. And even then you're talking about maybe a pack of Skittles <laughs> or, or a fun-sized candy bar. Like, really look at this. Look at what the destruction of our currency's value has done to us. That's inflation. The solution is deflation. The solution is sound money. The solution is not holding on to the petrodollar for dear life and hoping and praying that nothing bad's going to happen to it. And now that we see that the petrodollar is on its way out, it's time to be talking solutions for us. How are we going to keep our currency from going into freefall? We need sound money. On a, a number of levels, we need sound money. It would uh, Sound money, where our currency is backed by a hard, real asset, would incentivize our government to balance our damn budget and our trade deficit instead of sitting there with these trade deficits from these bad deals that don't that just give away money for free. And we certainly wouldn't be handing out 45 to 50 billion in federal, uh, not federal, in foreign aid every year. And that's not even counting the 136 and a half billion dollars we're giving to Ukraine. We wouldn't be giving out money for free. The money would stay here and we would it would be invested in this country if it was to be spent by the government at all. So on a number of levels, we have to go back. And with recent developments with the Petrodot, it's time to go back. The time is now. The opportunity is now. The incentive is now to go back to sound money. And that's my solution. Like, I, I, I do not fear. I do not fear the death of the Petrodot. I really don't. I mean, it's, it's uh, absurd to me that it was ever thought to be a good idea to outsource the value of our currency to another country. I mean, because that's what the petrodollar is. That, that's what it is. You, you buy oil from the, you buy oil from the Arabia primarily and a number of other countries too, but primarily in the Middle East, but you, you buy oil from Arabia and you have to do it in dollars. But let's break that down to what it is fundamentally. We outsource the value of our currency so that it's based on how much oil other countries are buying from yet another country. It's not even them buying oil from us. It's the, how much oil are you buying from this other country? What sense does that make? What sense does that make? That'd be like me saying, I'm going to pay my bills... with the money that you give to my neighbor. How does that work? How, it doesn't make any sense. That doesn't make any sense. It's like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to value. Uh, it's like if I'm trying to sell a house. I'm going to value my house at whatever you're willing to pay for my neighbor's house. Except my neighbor is not me. My neighbor... <laughs> It, when I say neighbor, I mean the guy living uh, three neighborhoods down. He's not He's not even in my neighborhood. He's, he's living three, three million miles away. And that guy's house isn't even like mine. I have a mansion and this guy has a, a two-bedroom flat. What, what about what sense does that make? It doesn't make any sense. 
it makes no sense to outsource the value of your currency like this. I will never understand the people who thought this was a good idea. And quite frankly, I don't want to understand them. <laughs> I wish to put them in the rear view of our country's history. But yeah, I don't I don't fear the death of the petrodollar like many others in our political space. Precisely because I have recognized the difference between the U.S. and the U.S. alliance system. Death of the petrodollar means the death not of the U.S., but of the U.S. alliance system. The death of the U.S. empire. And the, quite the opposite is going to happen to the United States. We're going to get a new lease on life once the empire is out of our fucking way. Once we're not handing out tens of billions of dollars to randos overseas because because uh, China, Russia, blah, blah, blah. And we get back to the business of economic, industrial, and social development in our own country. We'll be perfectly off, perfectly well off. The multipolar world benefits us perhaps more than anyone else if we can embrace it and become the great trading nation. Trade with everyone and alliances with no one. If we do that, the, 22nd, the 22nd century is ours. The 21st century will be great. Like, And it's that simple. And all we, we can have it all, but all we have to do is give up these commitments and entanglements and alliances. But people's pride won't allow them. So we have to be forced out of these regions by the people who live there until it's just the United States. And when it is, you'll see exactly what I'm talking about. But yeah, the petrodollar, it doesn't, it doesn't give our money its value. And that's another thing that I've noticed people panicking about. They say, oh, the dollar is going to die. Oh, it's gonna, this is going to kill the dollar. Oh, the dollar's on its way out. Well, the petrodollar does not give our money its value. In fact, again, like I say, our money has only declined in value for the last hundred years because we've been moving away from the gold standard for so many years, with the most notable incident being in the 30s and then in the 70s when we moved away from the gold standard entirely onto this petrodollar trash. Our currency has only de declined in value. So why would I be afraid of letting go of this system that has perpetuated the slipping and sliding of our currency's value into obscurity? I hate the petrodollar, and I can't wait to see it go. Mm -mm -mm. I can't wait. Like honestly, it's such a such a goofy idea. Such a goofy idea. I cannot wait to go back to sound money. Sound money, and these these MAGA Republicans look like they're gonna promise to give that to me. I'll see. They did good with the fight against McCarthy. And they did good enforcing that vote on withdrawing from Syria. So they, they have some goodwill built up in me. But I have to keep my eye on them. I really do. Those Republicans, those Republicans, they'll say one thing and then do another. But uh, I think we are on the right track. And I mean that awareness is being put out on the institutions responsible for creating these problems. So when the problems get bigger, I think the fingers are going to be pointed at all the right people this time. When we're talking about inflation right now, if our economy collapses, everyone's going to be looking at the people who caused the inflation. Oh, oh, oh that's the Fed. Oh, it's the government spending, which means the solution will be more obvious. If you're pointing to the right problem, 
cut less government spending, get rid of the fucking Fed. Get that bitch out of here. Get it out. So, in a way, uh, Saudi Arabia joining BRICS Plus and what I believe to be the eventual BRICS currency will actually be doing us a favor. It might, it may just actually be doing us a favor. Potentially, maybe. Well, we'll, we'll have to see. But I think, I think that in time we'll all look back on this with some rose-colored lenses, be like, ah, the day when we were finally able to go home and focus on our own country. Yeah, but shoot, to I, I said twenty twenty was worth three pennies. I don't know what 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 a dollar today would be worth in nineteen hundred when you have inflation rates of multiple times that multiple times the two to three percent figure. Uh, the government says it's seven to eight percent. They they say they wrangled it down to six. I don't trust them for a second. We're probably at fourteen percent plus. Yeah, yeah, but yes. Uh, oh, and one thing that I was thinking of when I was thinking about the national debt. Because I say that I'm in favor of a default if it's uh, when I, I say that I'm in favor of forgiving student loans. If it's a part of a broader default in the U.S. national debt, I think that'd be a fair exchange because uh, it wouldn't it wouldn't be right to default on one debt and then leave them hang, hanging. But then I, as I was thinking about Trump talking about renegotiating these trade deals as well as the ideas of reducing government spending being floated around, I realized that if you combine the two and we had a budget surplus, we might have the funds to pay off the debt. Might. Just might. Like It, it, would, it would take a, a, a pretty hefty surplus, a he pretty hefty budget surplus. Uh, so it would take Trump coming back in, renegotiating these trade deals. So we have a trade surplus of perhaps a hundred, maybe $200 billion. You know, it's possible. Every The Chinese and the Germans have it. So I don't see why we couldn't. The Russians have it. They, they've been solvent for the last, uh, who knows how long. That's why they, they don't have debt. But if we got a trade surplus and a budget surplus where we were bringing in more in taxes uh, with less government spending, and you can achieve larger revenues by cutting back on taxes as well. That's sort of a, uh, a cheat code, if you will, for the, for long-term revenue growth. In the, in the short term, you can raise taxes and get more, uh, but that's only if you're starting from a very low point. We're starting from a very high point. So you reduce the taxes. We might end up with more tax revenues. So if we have revenues, uh, a budget surplus from revenues and from a trade surplus, and we get... I don't know, maybe maybe a couple hundred billion, maybe five hundred billion a year. We could pay off the national debt in sixty-two years. We could pay it off. Now, that's a really long time, sixty-two years. But six that's infinitely better than oh, we'll get to it maybe eventually later, like we see now, where where we the deficit just keeps growing. And that means the debt keeps growing. There's a, oh, we'll get to it. Well, when? <laughs> How are you going to get to it if you're just going to spend more money that you don't have? Yeah, and, uh, but that that's uh, my little idea.
that I had in my head that I wanted to dump on you. But now we'll get into the Nashville shooting because some more information came out. I was only able to gloss over it last episode, but we have some more information to work with. And some more uh, things that came out surrounding this, uh, not necessarily a part of the shooting, but some of the fallout. So last week, there was a the shooting at Nashville, the Presbyterian Covenant School, the Christian school, uh, where three staff members and three children died before the police came in and took down the shooter, whose name was Audrey Hale, a 28-year-old former student of the school who, while born as a woman, identified as a man, and that detail becomes just a little more important later on. I won't obsess too much on that or on this person their story is concluded uh figuratively and literally but the body cam footage was released the text messages between audrey and her friend were released where in that exchange she said she was getting ready to go kill herself basically and she said she was not joking and then that was the last message that her friend received from her before she went and shot up a school now she didn't say she was going to go shoot up a school in that message so I'm not entirely sure if we should be blaming her friend for not necessarily calling the police for this. Because uh, I've also dealt with people. It's very rare, or at least it's been rare for me, but it does happen where people say they're going to commit suicide. Not in, not in the, the joking sense, oh, I'm going to heal myself. Like, uh, like I heard a whole lot back when I was in high school. But the, the whole they go through the whole drama. Of making it seem like they're really going to do it. Not just the, oh, oh, I got a bad grade. I'm going to kill myself. No, it's the, I, I, I'm dying. I'm dying. I, I don't want to live anymore. Like, the whole drama. I've been through that. And so I know that there are people who will do that for attention. And then they, they don't do it. And so it ends up being a boy who cried wolf type scenario. So I'm not entirely sure if Audrey has ever done that before. Or has done anything to warrant her friend not believing that. But either way, I don't think her friend should be blamed for not getting involved in this situation. Because who in their right mind would expect that their friend is going to go shoot up a school? Because there, there was some talk about trying to hold her accountable. Um, but this is Audrey's doing. This is her crime. She's 28-year-old. You can't... If it was a kid, I'd say, where are the parents? Like with the Parkland shooting, where are the parents? This guy gets his gun from his his father. The FBI has this guy on a list. They do nothing because they're a worthless institution, just like they were on 9-11. You have all these neighbors who see him and call the police multiple times so the police know about this. They do nothing. The, the neighbors watch this guy go to school with this gun. They do nothing. He gets there, and then he just lights them all up. It's like, okay, so everybody and their mom dropped the ball. And I'm supposed to be mad at the gun? No, 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 no. But yeah, this she, Audrey, is a full-grown adult. So these are her actions and her actions alone. Now, granted, she identifies as a man, but I'm going to simplify this <laughs> by referring to her as her gender of origin, as you, as I, if you will. So the body, fam, the body cam footage gets released. The text messages get released that I just went over. Uh... But yet, the manifesto that Audrey uh, wrote, and I, I use wrote uh, 
semi-facetiously because you, all these shooters with their manifestos, I, <laughs> I have a good enough understanding of people roughly my age and around that and a good enough understanding of people who are about a decade older than me too, courtesy of my older system. People don't just sit there and write manifestos. This is not the 1800s. People don't write memoirs, all right? Certainly not regular people. No, no one keeps it like a personal diary anymore where they just write down what happened in a day. So when I hear that they wrote a manifesto, I'm like, oh, okay. Uh, so this was planned and orchestrated by some third party, probably working in our government, to try to push the agenda of taking guns. Like that—that's that's the position I'm at right now at this, at this point. But I have just zero reason to trust that these people who have these these mentally ill people on a list on on a watch list, and they don't do anything about them. But we're never supposed to blame the agency. We're supposed to blame the gun. I have reached the point where I just, I blame the agency. And that's where I am. I, I blame them. I blame them. When, whenever I hear, oh, they have a manifesto, uh, people don't write manifestos. People don't like writing a, a two-page paper. <laughs> in high school, people hate having to pay, write 10, 20-page essays in college. You, you're telling me they're going to write one for free <laughs> of their own volition? Of their own will, when they're about to go commit suicide, you're you're telling me, and it's only when they go shoot up a school, only when they go shoot up a place do they have a manifesto. When they when they go shoot someone at a grocery store, they don't have a manifesto. When some guy gets shot on the street and then gets his car jacked, he doesn't have a manifesto. It's only the the mass shooters who shoot up crowds in schools who have manifestos. Okay, I don't believe it. So when they say that she wrote a manifesto, I read someone, probably in our government, wrote it. And she, a mentally ill person, is being used as a prop to push the, the gun agenda. The, the ban gun agenda. Now that's how I see this at this point. I, I've just become that distrustful of the agencies responsible for keeping us safe because they routinely fail at every given opportunity uh, school board when parents rise up against a school board they get put on a watch list <laughs> by the doj and yet the doj has nothing to say about these school shooters they, they they don't they can't go spy on them you're gonna spy on me but you but you can't do anything useful with the under me okay if i go to an airport i have to be stripped bare and uh, <laughs> I'd be treated like a second-class citizen if I go to an airport. But you ain't got nothing for the school shooters? Okay. Uh, th th that's where I'm at. That's where I'm at. Maybe you're, maybe you're different. But that's the point that I've reached. And I hope I've laid out my case to you. But I just don't believe that she wrote this manifesto. Uh, and I forget the last shooter... When they say he wrote a 28-page manifesto, I said, get the fuck out of here. So, I don't believe it. I don't believe it. I don't believe that she wrote this. I believe that this was somebody else's doing. Again, probably in our government. But the fact that we can see the body cam footage, the fact that we can see the text messages, especially the body cam footage, the fact that we can see this shooter girl get popped on national television, but we can't see words? 
that's goofy. That's strange. Like, but as expected, I'll move on from that point. But as expected, this incident has reopened the gun debate. And like clockwork, you have people generally on the Democrat side of our political spectrum calling for the violation of the Constitution again with gun control. Because that's what it is, a violation of the Constitution. It's, that's all that it is. And I stand by my solution, which is that we need more people armed. We need, in fact, I say we need a mass rearming of the population and mandatory gun training classes in schools. Now, how's that for a solution? How's that for a solution? If people are not afraid of guns, then they will use them. And if more people have guns, then there are going to be more people readily available to stop shooters from shooting up populated places like malls, like concerts, like schools. The solution is to have more people armed. It's not a matter of good guy with a gun versus bad guy with a gun. It's a matter of normal people with guns being able to protect themselves from idiots and mentally deranged people who, who also have guns, who usually acquire their guns illegally anyway. What is, who's gun control going to stop? The politicians have security, they have guns. The criminals get their guns illegally, so they have guns. The police have guns by necessity of their job. You're the only one that gets screwed with gun control. But you're the only one who's going to get shot at. You, the, the primary victim, the prime target of these attacks are the only one who would be prevented from having a gun with gun legislation. It's not the solution. And, and never mind that it's a failed policy that hasn't made Chicago any safer. It hasn't made New York any safer. Especially not with the crime wave we see going on. Gun control is a failed policy. But the advocates of it want to take the guns away. Because they are pro-authoritarian. They are pro-government control. And an armed populace is not conducive towards government control. Because they can, because the people can say no, and if you send an agent to their house, that agent can get shot. See, that's the incentive to leave people alone. You take away the guns, you can get Nazi German, or something worse potentially. Well, let's not let's not pretend we've uh, we've outdone ourselves. Let's not pretend that we are incapable of outdoing ourselves again. The Nazis were bad, but don't think it that it can't get worse. I mean, hell. China killed 50 million people. Stalin killed 25 million people. How many did Hitler kill? He killed a lot. But he's not beating the communists. So let's not pretend that we can't get worse. An armed population is how you prevent that from happening. It's also how you defend the country. But yeah, but yeah that's my solution. We need more people armed. So we can increase the chances that these shooters... And it's a little different with schools because it would it would have to only be the adults because you're talking kids. But if you have more people who are armed, that increases the chances that when these shooters go to shoot up a crowd, it increases the chance that somebody in that crowd is going to have a gun and will know how to use it and can shoot them back. And that's what I believe the solution. Like, I say it every time we talk about a shooting situation. How differently would that situation have gone had just a handful, just a handful of people in that crowd been armed? How differently would this school shooting have gone if just a handful of the teachers were armed? 
How differently? You're talking a response time. It took the police uh, 14 minutes to get here. 14 minutes. And my back when I was in high school, we had a seven-minute passing time. We had block schedules. Seven-minute passing time. I could get, we had three floors too. I could get from the third floor all the way down to the bottom floor and across the building and still have like two, three minutes to spare. If I was walking briskly, I, I, I could still have two minutes to spare if I was walking casually. I, I don't need the elevator. I can go up and down the stairs. It'll take some effort, but I can get anywhere I want in that building in seven minutes. Anywhere I need to get in that building in seven minutes. I can go walk from my, I can go take the long way, go take a bathroom break, come out, go back in because there's something in my eye, come out, then walk down the stairs, two flights of stairs to go get to the gym. I can go anywhere I want in seven minutes. And that's in my high school. You're talking this shooter's here for 14 minutes. She could have gotten literally anywhere that she wanted. And she was shooting people on sight. Like if she saw you, she shot you. That's an eternity. Seven minutes is an eternity. And that's plenty of time. To, if seven minutes is plenty of time to get from one end of the building in a high school to another, a high school with three floors, 14 minutes is an eternity. Like, we cannot rely solely on the police to solve these problems. They can only, they're, they're human. They can only do so much and they can only respond so fast. Like on a good day, they're going to be two seconds away from the school. But if they're just out on patrol casually and they get this call, you don't know how far away from the school they're going to be. Especially if your school is like in a more remote location it's going to take a while for them to get there. They can't just uh, tell they can't just instant transmission into the school. It takes travel time. Then they have to walk out and go find the shooter. So that's even more time. The fact that it was only 14 minutes is a miracle and the fact that only 6 people died is a miracle. 14 minutes is an eternity. She could have shot up whole entire classrooms. We could have easily had any one of those doors been unlocked or not closed all the way. She could have lit up a whole classroom of like 30 people in an instant, dead, just one after the other. What? Imagine she caught them in the middle of, uh, in the middle of passing period. Imagine if she ran up on them in the middle of passing period. When, when a whole bunch of the kids are going to lunch. Imagine if she ran up on them at lunchtime. How many of these kids would have died in the 14 minutes that it took for the police to get there? This is what I mean when I say we have to be our own first line of defense. That situation could have gone so infinitely worse. We are lucky only six people got shot and killed. With 14 minutes in a school? Again, what if she had shown up during lunchtime? What if she had shown up while they while they were on a playground? So many people could have died. It is a miracle that only six did, and that's still a tragedy. But it shows you the limitations of relying solely on the police to solve this problem for us. It's going to take more. And certainly until we can sort out the mental health issue 
and the aspect of this, but I stand by my solution. We need more guns. We need more people in the crowd being shot at who can shoot the shooter back. That's what we need. But aside from the solution, I want to talk about the fallout from this, which uh, this began circulating after the shooting. Because uh, uh, I mentioned before that Audrey was a woman who identified as a man later on. But it began circulating after the shooting that the trans community was planning a day of vengeance in response to laws being passed across the country which banned gender affirmations. And this being brought up has incited a wave of accusations uh, that right-wing commentators were transphobic, well, uh, which are, is sort of par for the course at, at this point, but th that they were also somehow implicated in this shooting because they were transphobic. And this led to the the conversation somehow shifting, and this is really just bizarre. It was really bizarre to observe this. It led to the conversation shifting almost exclusively to the trans folk. They, they have nothing to do with this. But the people who shifted the conversation onto them, onto the trans, the people doing this really think that they're, they're onto something here. They really think that they're doing the trans community a favor. But no, they're not. There was, there was no need to make this a trans issue. And it's not like doing so is going to do the trans any favors either. All it's done is taken the public anger towards school shootings and redirected that towards the trans community. And unnecessarily too, I might add. Like the fact that the shooter was trans was likely to force the issue of recognizing gender dysphoria as a mental illness again, which would disqualify this person from owning a gun in the first place. That would have happened. And the fact that the shooter was trans was likely to bring this up and to bring up the issue of gender dysphoria as a mental illness. And if it were to be recognized as a mental illness again, it would completely reverse the whole trans acceptance thing. But and this coming at a time when the gays are already having a rough time dealing with the constant exposure of sexualized books, schoolwork, and drag shows in school, so much so that they have to distance themselves from the people doing this. You have gays against grooming. Like, it's, it's that bad to where they have to distance themselves. And I, I believe that. I believe that they are not represented by these pedophiles. And it's good that they're speaking out against it. But by making this shooting all about the trans, it just ends up undermining any attempt that they will have to make to defend themselves from any accusation that get hurled their way. Like, had the conversation reached this point naturally, the, the issue of gender dysphoria, had it reached this point naturally, the trannies would have at least been able to state their case and explain why they are not the same as the shooter and how, even though Audrey was a member of their community, she was trans, even though she was a member of the community, she was not representative of the trans community. They would have been able to state their case as to why they are functioning members of society who should not be lumped in with this menace to society. But by making it all about the trans, it just ends up undermining any attempt that they'll make to defend themselves. And another thing which came from this shooting was a series of proposals on how to protect schools uh, moving forward. I was watching the Patrick Bet David podcast the other day, and there were a few proposals which 
seemed pretty good. One was to hire ex-military to guard schools or even putting empty police cars in front of the schools as a deterrence. Now, the empty police car thing, I think, would probably work at first, and then people would find out that they're empty. Now, at that point, then it's a 50-50. It's, oh, the police officer could be there, or he might not be there. But 50-50, if I am mentally deranged, I'm going to take that chance. I just might take that chance. Now, there's a chance I don't, and it still might be worthwhile to do. But I see it as more of a, a short-term thing, or a short-term bang for the buck. You'd have to cycle, and perhaps you'd just have a guard. The, the other solution is to have a guard on campus at all times, and to even hire ex-military, which I think would be great for a peacetime America scenario. And like, if America goes home and brings our troops home, a lot of the troops are going to need something to do. Like, because acclimating to civilian life isn't, isn't easy for a lot of troops, but if a lot of them can get jobs as security in schools, and not all of them would be suited for it, of course. Some of them would be a little too rough around the edges, but a, a good number of them would be decently suited towards this role, and they would have something to direct their ire towards, and that'd be monsters who get bright ideas about shooting up kids, and then you'd have trained professionals ready to pop them in an instant. That'd be a great thing to have for our schools. That'd be great. So that that's a, those are a couple solutions I heard. and But yeah, I believe it's time for the mass rearming of the American population so that the law-abiding citizens of our country can finally be liberated by force of their own arms from the criminal's tyranny. We should be liberated from the criminal's tyranny. Uh, and a rearming of our population would not just solve the issue of school shootings and save countless lives just from the deterrence factor, but it would also cancel this crime wave taking place in America's big cities. People wouldn't rob a store if they know they're going to get shot at, if they know there's a, a 80 to 90 percent chance they're going to get shot at rather than a, a 20, 30 percent. People wouldn't mug you on the street if they know you're going to shoot their ass. <laughs> And people certainly wouldn't go shooting up crowds if they knew that at least 30 to 80% of that crowd is going to shoot them back. That's just asking to die. You'd be better off. You'd be better off just walking up to a person and saying, hey, can you pop me, please? Like, and that's what I think we need. An armed society is a polite society. I think it's time for the rearming of American population. I think it's time. We... It's time. We have to do it. It's time. It is time for us to reassume our constitutional right and bear with it all the responsibilities that come. We can no longer afford to outsource the safety of our people and of our children to just the police. The police can do a lot, but they can't do everything. We have to become our own first line of defense. We must become our own first line of defense. And again, think of every mass shooting and imagine just how differently those instances would have gone had just a handful, let alone if a large swath of the crowd was armed, but if just a handful of people were armed, how fast that would have ended. Then apply that thought to schools and think of how many children's lives we could save. We have to draw a line at the children. If nowhere else, it has to be the children. And that's where I draw my line. 
that's where I draw my line. Now we get into this idea. This is a very dangerous idea. This very stupid idea. But this idea of the EU sending in peacekeepers to Ukraine. Now, I'm going to tell you what's going down before I break down why it's an incredibly retarded idea. <laughs> but last week, the EU proposed ideas of sending in peacekeepers into Ukraine. And that, that's that's the gist of it. Now, you know, we, have to, we have to promote peace, so we're going to send in these peacekeeping forces into Ukraine. That, that's, that's the whole gist of it. The specifics aren't necessarily worked out yet. Yet. But, yeah. Yeah. It, that, a.k.a. the dumbest and most retarded idea to have surfaced in this entire war. And I mean that. Like, it, it, it took a lot. But they finally dumb it. Because before this, the dumbest idea was the whole no-fly zone stuff. Where, oh, we're going we're gonna to put a no-fly zone over Ukraine. Yeah, how are you going to enforce that? Uh, well, if the, if the Russians fly, we're going to shoot their jets down. What about the Ukrainian jets? Oh, you're not going to shoot those down? You're, what happened to no-fly zone? You're, you're going to go start a war with Russia over Ukraine because the Russians flew a plane over a war zone? Like, no one... Oh, that... It, it bothers me and upsets me just remembering that. Because there were so many people that were just adamant about that no-fly zone stuff. And it's like, do you even know what you're advocating for? Because if you shoot down that Russian jet, it is war. It is war. It's not, oh, my bad. It's, oh, it's not, oh, you should have you should have known better, Russia. Bad Russia. You you should have stayed out of the no-fly. No, that's, that's war now. That's war now. Because the only way a no-fly zone works is if you are willing to shoot down anything that enters the zone. Because if you're not going to shoot down what enters the zone, then your no-fly zone is meaningless. But in the event that you encounter someone who is willing to call that bluff, you get war. You just get you just end up with more war. You ha it doesn't work if you just unilaterally impose it. You have to start with a ceasefire. Then you can negotiate a no-fly zone and limit it to the ground. Which is what made it such a dumb idea. No one was talking about a ceasefire. They're talking about, oh, we're just gonna, we're just gonna put a no flies on it. But okay, you you do that, and then you can go fight the Russians. <laughs> but here we go. I thought that was the dumbest idea of the war. And we've we've gone through a lot of dumb ideas. We've seen counteroffensive after counteroffensive from the Ukrainians. They're they're talking about another one, even though they have an ammunition shortage at the same time. Which we talked about the mother of all sanctions against the country that has their economy growing even under all the sanctions we've been putting over them. We, we never let up. We never unsanctioned Russia from 2014. We just sanctioned them more. And that caused them to become immune to sanction. And we thought the mother of all sanctions was going to do the job. Hell, to be fair, the Russians thought the mother of all sanctions was going to do the job too. Not kill them, but it, they thought it was going to hurt. They didn't expect their currency to bounce back and become stronger. They didn't expect their economy to grow. But we did. We, we expected them to die. We expected that they were going to collapse, that there was going to be regime change in Russia, and, and then we wouldn't even have to lift a finger. Then we could just partition Russia however we wanted. We could pillage Russia, and none of that happened. None of that happened. We, we thought we were going to impose a, a price cap on Russian oil, 
And all that happened was Russia just sold it to everyone else and everyone else sold (laughs) that same oil to the West at marked up prices. So the Russians still got market value for their shit. And we ended up paying above market value for their shit. There's been a great deal of stupid ideas throughout this war. A great, great many. But this is definitively the dumbest as of now. And I, I have to preface by saying that it's it's a shame, but I, 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 I don't even know what to say. I know how I feel, but I, uh, it's, oh my goodness, bro. Oh my goodness. Like, and I, I said that this, I, I'm just struggling to put this into words because a few months ago, a few months ago, if you remember, I did a segment talking about one of the reasons I believe Russia was taking so long preparing for their eventual offensive. Like It has to come. Otherwise, this war is just not going to end. The Russians aren't just going to sit there and go, oh, these are the boundaries now. No, they're going to finish the job at some point. And they are bringing in offensive weapons with these hundreds of thousands of troops that they're amassing in Crimea and in Gorograd, Gorograd. Oh, let me look that one up. And up by Kiev in Belarus, where they have joint units between them and Belarus. And I'm like, okay, they're bringing in clearly offensive weaponry. So eventually, <laughs> they're going to attack it in an offensive manner in an offensive manner but uh i was wondering why why it was taking so long because the rumors were that they were going to attack back in like uh this well the windsor we thought that i thought there was going to be a winter offensive a lot of people thought there was going to be a winter offensive but the winter offensive did not materialize so then it's a question of why why exactly did it not materialize? And when we look at it, oh, Belograd, that, that, that's, that's what I was going to go. It took me a minute. Belograd, that's right across from Kharkov. That, uh, it's the Russian territory right across from Kharkov, you know. So they're amassing troops there. They're amassing troops in Crimea. They're amassing troops in Belarus. And they're preparing offensive weaponry. They're training their troops for offensive maneuvers. And it's like, okay, well, it's going to come eventually. So what's taking so long? Because the 300,000 that they wanted to mobilize back in October, and they walked away with 400,000 basically, because they got like 80 to 90,000 volunteers on top of the 300,000. That would have been enough. That would have been enough, because then you're talking a force of half a million uh, that you can commit to Ukraine, and then you have the rest of the, the Russian standing army just chilling out wherever they are. <clears throat> Excuse me. But the 300,000, which ended up being 400,000, would have been enough. I say half a million. It's more like 600,000 because they had 200,000 in Ukraine to begin with. That would have been more than enough to demolish Ukraine in a comprehensive way. So then what was the need for this remilitarization the second mobilization russia did back in december and i i switched between remilitarization and mobilization and i try to stick to the remilitarization because uh 
those troops are going to be added to the standing army when this is over. So Russia's force of 750,000 that they had at the beginning of the war, that's going to be expanded by half a million on a more long-term basis. That's why it's a remilitarization, not just a mobilization for the war. But that was half a million men by itself. So you're talking an addition of 900,000 men between these two mobilizations on top of Russia's standing army of 750,000, around 200,000 of which were committed in Ukraine. That, so you they've essentially more than doubled the size, they've more than doubled the size of their army in a year. And I'm supposed to believe that this is just for Ukraine? It, that seems like overkill, a lot of overkill. So then I thought about it and I'm like, hmm, I don't think this is for Ukraine. I think that the first mobilization was more than enough for Ukraine. So then what was the extra half million for? And well, they told us, they told us what the extra half million was for. It's because Russia was preparing for the possibility of a long-term conflict with the West. And so then it, it sort of clicks. It's like, oh, okay. They're getting ready for an offensive in Ukraine. But because the West is so heavily invested here, and this is my thesis, because the West is, and NATO is so heavily invested in Ukraine, if Ukraine's lines collapse and Russia's just attacking them from multiple axes, and they, it, it's clear and apparent that the war is over, it was all but over, and the Ukrainian resistance, any organized resistance is done, NATO, having invested so much into this conflict, so much into Ukraine, in men, material, and money, NATO might do something stupid. That's what I, I believe Russia was preparing for the possibility that NATO would do something stupid in Ukraine, like sending in troops into Western Ukraine as the Russians are rolling through. That's what I believe Russia was preparing for, a war with, not with Ukraine, but with NATO. A large-scale, high-intensity war with NATO. On off the possibility that when they moved into Ukraine for the killing blow, when they went for the jugular, that NATO was going to do something stupid. And when you view it like that, suddenly such a large force of well over a million, almost two million, actually, it, it makes sense now that they would have a force that large. And it, you can see now, and I think that this is what we're starting to see. I hope that I'm wrong. You know, I, I usually I usually take solace in being right. And I hope that I'm wrong, but this might just be exactly that, this whole peacekeepers idea. This might just be exactly that, that scenario, except, you know, prior to the Russians moving in. Or perhaps it plays out exactly like that because Ukrainians are getting ready for this counteroffensive. This counteroffensive isn't going to work. They don't have the ammunition. They don't have the, the tanks, the infantry fighting vehicles. They don't have the armor. They don't have the guns. They just don't have the firepower. And if they do, they don't have it in sufficient quantities to maintain the offensive. So when it fails, the Ukrainians are literally going to be ass out in the wind. With no artillery and no ammunition. Well, no ammunition, period. They have artillery. They have the guns. 
they'll probably have some armored vehicles and some tanks. But all the tanks that they just got, those 30-something Abrams and the, the this many Leopards, all, all those are going to get obliterated when they waste them in this offensive. And then the path is just going to be wide open for Russia after they take Bakhmut. Because Wagner sounds like it's about to bow out after they finish the battle for Bakhmut. And the Bakh- Bakhmut is slowly but surely being captured by the Russians. They're either going to, Ukraine's either going to be forced out of the city by, you well, force, or they're going to get encircled. They can pick their poison. They lose either way unless they leave. They don't want to leave. So they do this counteroffensive, and then it fails, and then Bakhmut falls. That It's a wrap. It's a wrap. And then the Russians might commence their own offensive. And this might break the back. This might be the backbreaker. The backbreaker offensive. That's what I'll call it. And so what then? Then you have the collapse of Ukraine on multiple fronts. The Ukrainians have troops up in the north because they're afraid that the Russians are going to attack them. They do have some troops spread out. But the more that they redeploy troops from other places to go reinforce Bakhmut, the weaker both their northern and southern defenses get. And the weaker they get, the easier it is to just collapse them in from all sides. And if that is what ends up happening, and I believe it'll happen at some point, these people talking about peacekeepers might send in NATO forces, and then we have a war. Then we have a war. Like I've been saying, I think Russia's holding off they're mobile, doing all this mobilization so that they are ready for a war with NATO when they go in to finish off Ukraine. Because if they're ready, because if NATO does something stupid and Ukraine, Russia ends up at war with NATO. And we have no guarantee that NATO isn't going to do something stupid. We have, I mean, listen to these people. They're fanatical about Ukraine. And now they're talking about sending in peacekeepers without first negotiating a ceasefire. They don't even want to hear about a ceasefire. Kirby, John Kirby just said that a peace deal is unacceptable. So if a peace deal is unacceptable, then you know a ceasefire is unacceptable as well. And if you don't first have a ceasefire, then how are you going to send in these peacekeepers without just joining the war? You're just joining the war at that point. Those aren't peacekeepers. You're just joining the war. And that's what the Russians said. This is exactly the kind of stupidity that I thought Russia might be preparing for. And it seems like it was a good thing that they did prepare. Because my entire thesis was if they move into Ukraine and then NATO moves in and then gets blown up by Russian artillery, Russia's at war with NATO. That's a bit too late to be mobilizing troops for a war with NATO, especially when you see the standards that the Russian military likes to keep their troops up to. So they can have, so they can be combat effective. But if you raise the troops for a war with NATO before you finish off Ukraine, you can grind down Ukraine more. You can blow through more NATO weapons because NATO's going to keep feeding Ukraine more and more weapons. You can grind down both of those, which weakens Ukraine and NATO at the same time because you're destroying NATO's arsenals. So then, when you move into Ukraine, even you're prepared not just for the destruction of you, a weaker Ukraine. But you're also prepared to fight a war against a weaker NATO. 
we might be moving towards that right now with this peacekeeper idea. Because again, you have to negotiate a ceasefire first, then send in the peacekeepers. But these people don't even want to talk peace with Russia. They don't want to talk to Russia. So you, if you can't have the ceasefire, then the conditions have not been met to send in peacekeepers. The peacekeepers are only going to be accepted by one side, which is Ukraine, and not accepted by the other. Which means you're just going to end up with a war between Russia and NATO. This is exactly the, stu the, the stupid thing that I said Russia was probably preparing for NATO to do. The deployment of NATO, uh, oh, my mistake, of EU peacekeepers into Ukraine. And it's a stupid idea precisely because there's no ceasefire. You can't just send in peacekeepers without a ceasefire. You have to get the two sides to stop shooting at each other first. Then you send in the peacekeepers to do what? Keep the peace. These are not these are the peacekeepers. These are not the peacemakers. They don't come in and shoot everybody and say, hey. It's time to stop shooting. No, these are the peacekeepers. There has to be peace first for them to keep it. But they're not, they're not, they don't even want to talk peace with Russia. They don't want to talk to Russia. So uh, it's clear that the Europeans have no intention of, sec of securing peace between Russia and Ukraine. The EU is overtly biased in favor of Ukraine. And many leaders of EU countries have said themselves that they want that their aim is to weaken Russia, to destroy Russia, to dismember Russia, to defeat Russia. And if they send these peacekeeping troops in without securing the peace, they won't be making peace. They won't be keeping peace. They'll just be making more war. And since almost every EU member is a member of NATO, that would mean that once these troops get blown up by Russian artillery, that's an attack on NATO. Now you're talking Article 5, and World War Three, or that's what the hype would say. I would say, hmm, I, I, I like my my fancy names, uh, you know. But I wonder what I would call that one. Would it be, uh, would it still be the Russo-Ukrainian War at that point, or would I need a a, a bigger a bigger better name? Hmm, uh, I'm I'm still working on that one. Hopefully, I'll have it ready in the event that it comes, and I hope it doesn't. But yeah, th this is it. And it also, uh, I'll, I'll say this as well, the fact that they're talking about sending these peacekeepers without peace, which would effectively amount to just a, a reinforcement of Ukrainian positions, this also hints at how little faith they have in the success of this Ukrainian counteroffensive that everyone's talking about and that we've been hearing about for the past few weeks. And when Ukraine's offensive fails, as I believe that even the EU expects is going to happen, these Ukraine fanatics might act on this idea of sending in peacekeepers, and they're going to get us into a war. They are going to get us into a war that we're not going to win. The Russians are prepared. We are not. If we end up at war with Russia, and all these people just, just go dogpiling on and say, we're, we're, if we all band together, we can fight and stop Russia's, and we can stop Putin's aggression in Ukraine. And you get all these governments who gave away weapons and ammunition and aid to Ukraine without the consent of their people. It's not too much of a stretch to say that they would go all in on this war without the consent of the people living in their countries. Now you're talking uh, carte blanche for Russia to just flatten everything. Because 
I said at the beginning of this war, if it was us that they were at war with, we would not get the kitty gloves that they've been giving to Ukraine. We, we wouldn't. We just would not. They wouldn't offer us that courtesy. We'd just get blown up. They would use the air power. They would use everything to flatten us on the battlefield. They would not go anywhere near as soft on us. Like the Russians went into Ukraine. They kept the electricity running, the power running, the water. Uh, they, they didn't affect the pipelines. They kept they have kept and continue to keep civilian casualties to a minimum. They didn't go flatten every city in their in, in their path on some desert storm shit. No, they came in with a incredibly light hand. They will not give NATO that courtesy. NATO gets the gauntlet. That's what NATO's gonna get, and NATO's not prepared for the gauntlet. NATO's not prepared for a war with Russia. We don't have the ammunition for a war with Russia, and we don't have the production to sustain a war with Russia. At best, we'd be able to go for a year with mixed results across the front based on uh, army from ar from army to army because the smaller armies are going to die first. They don't have the manpower to withstand these losses that we're seeing in Ukraine. They don't have the manpower and they don't have the ammunition. Russia would steamroll the Baltics and Finland in a second. Well, they, they take their time. But it would be relatively quickly. Uh, they wouldn't even get the chance to fight back. They might try guerrilla warfare. But I'm not entirely sure that would go as well for them this time around as it did in the 1900s. They might be in for a very rude awakening. But you, they, we, would, we would have handed over all this territory to Russia. Because they would have had to fight us because we started the war. They're not going to give up the Baltics. If we start the war with them and then we lose, they're not, Russia's not going to give up the Baltics. They're going to keep the Baltics. They're going to keep their land bridge to Kaliningrad. And that's just going to be that. That's just going to be that. They're probably even going to try to secure territory to the west of Belarus so that we can't just go attack Belarus. They're going to take all of Ukraine. If we drag Moldova into this, they'll take Moldova too. We will have handed it all to Russia on a silver platter. Because of these stupid ideas, these incredibly dangerous and reckless ideas, incredibly dangerous. Uh, but that—that's the just about the whole episode. But I do have this uh, this little segment here at the end because I was thinking, I was doing thinking, thinking about all these uh, these insane people, these anti-humanist people, like. Jeff Bezos, Bill Gates, and Klaus Schwab. How they, they, they have all this money, they have all this influence, but yet they are so dystopian in their view of how technology sh should be used. And then I thought about it, and I realized that because they, the media is un essentially under con the control of people who think the way that they do, our perception of technology has been shaped in no small part to suit their ideas of how technology should be used. We're used to thinking of technology as being dystopian. We're used to thinking of technology as, oh, the machines are going to enslave us. We've been programmed to think that way. But then I took a step back. And just going off some of these technologies that they want to use to enslave us, I realized that they don't have to be used in that way at all. In fact, their potential to do good is way greater than their potential to do bad.
and I'll just run through some of the, the technologies that I'm looking at here that I was thinking about and sort of give you my perspective on these because I think I think that this will be really good for more people to think about, especially as we these technologies become more and more present with especially with uh, the, this AI generated stuff and all the, the deep fakes and the, and the presidents. Uh, and I guess I'll start with deep fakes. People are afraid of deep fakes. They're, they're all, uh, how, how are we going to be able to tell what's real and what's fake? You know, how are we going to be able to, you can libel someone, you, the, uh, these people, these streamers on Twitch having their, their faces and their bodies uh, being auto-generated on, <laughs> onto porn. <laughs> and so you, essentially someone can make free porn using their own person as an, an intellectual. People have become an intellectual property. Like actual people have become an intellectual property with this deep fake technology. Now you have to copyright yourself. <laughs> and they were crying and uh, I found it hilarious. But this technology, while it's primarily being used for memes right now, and while it can be used for great harm and for fraud, especially when you combine technologies of, you know, of digital mimicry for movements of people's faces and their bodies and their postures and their body language and their mannerisms. You can, you can mimic all that using AI, but you can also mimic their voices. And while it's, it's pretty good now, it's in the rudimentary phases, but it's still pretty good now. It's believable, especially if you can get the right inflections and whatnot. Like if you listen to someone talk for a good while, you can mimic the way they speak really good with these technologies. And as it goes on, I imagine that that'll become easier and easier to do. And people are talking about how are we going to be able to distinguish deepfakes? How are we going to know what's real? Uh, what about chat GBT or GPT and how they're going to conquer the world? Well, one, they're programmed by people. So <laughs> as long as the, the people programming it aren't insane... We don't have too much to worry about. But with regards to deepfakes, if we had the technology to scan and analyze someone's facial structure and their movements and the technology to single out the, the sound and the inflections of someone's voice to the point where you can mimic it almost identically. If you have the technology to do all that with a real person, then that very same technology can be applied for spotting deep fakes from a mile away because it the same technology that can analyze say my face moving and how my mouth moves and you can put words over that and it'll sync up that very same technology could spot deep fakes because it it would you'd be using the exact same technology except instead of to take and copy you'd be using to expose and uh It'd be essentially like using uh, the control. I, I forget when you use the control to find specific words on a page, you could do that with the exact same technology and the exact same technology. And this is astonishing that I don't hear more people talking about it. The very same technology that can analyze my face can analyze the face of a deep fake. And instead of copying it to do certain other things, you can just identify whether it is real or a deep fake. The technology 
that enables deepfakes is simultaneously the technology that will save us from deepfakes. It's just about application. And you can apply that to vocals as well, not just facial movements or, or, or bodily movements because you have deepfakes of whole movement, whole moving bodies. The same technology is what you need, just a different application. Then you get into the, the whole AI automation and digitization. Uh, and specifically, when you talk about self-driving cars. Now, this is one of relevance right now as they're pushing for all these electric vehicles and all oh, your, you have to live with. I've, I think I've gone over why electric vehicles are bad, but in case I haven't, and in case I was just uh, thinking about it to myself, but I hadn't actually vo vocalized it to you. The reason electric cars are not necessarily a good idea is because they don't, they don't have the range. They go for a few hours and you have to sit there charging it for at least as long, probably twice as long. And what that does is it effectively makes long distance travel using your car impractical it's if you have if you can only drive for two hours and then you have to sit there for three charging up the car then you can drive for another two then you have to stop for that makes long distance travel using your car a nightmare and that's assuming you can find a charging station if you can't find a charging, you're just going to sit there now you have to get towed by some gas guzzling vehicle and if you make long distance travel that difficult that logistically taxing to the point where it's just so impractical that no one wants to do it people just aren't going to do it and what you get even for those who do choose to do it is you're limiting people's transportation to essentially that of a horse you can only go as far in a day as you could on a horse basically well, that, that's a bit of an exaggeration. You can go farther. You can move faster using an electric vehicle. But my goodness, the range and mobility of the automobile just gets thrown out the window with these the limitations of the battery on an electric vehicle. But they want us to have all electric everything. And then when you combine that, the, the limitations of your range with the way they want to use self-driving cars, they want to use the, the self-driving car to where if you... Uh, Say you're you're just sitting there, you're having a conversation on the phone. You're you're not driving the car; the car's driving itself to where you're trying to go. And you say something bad about Nancy Pelosi. You say that AOC has a big butt. You you offend Ipatch McGee. You offend Patchy the pirate by not being in favor of a war. Now all of a sudden, your car is uh, finna turn your ass into the police station instead of taking you where you're trying to go. That's how they want to use this technology. They want your car to be weaponized against you. They want it so that if, if you do something they don't like, they can just sh turn your car off and you can't go anywhere now. Oh, you can't go to work, too bad. Oh, you can't go see your family, too bad. Too bad. You, you said something that we don't like, that we don't approve of, and now we get to turn your car off. That's how they imagine this technology being used, which is dystopian and is something to be worried about but then let's look at the flip side of this, because I, I was pleasantly surprised when I thought about some of the good things that this technology could be used for. And one of the things that came to my mind was instead of using this as a, an a, a, a autonomous prison cell, we could use self-driving cars for the abolition of traffic.
imagine you have a whole bunch of self-driving cars and you might need five or even 6G technology as a, like a, a baseline to make this work, you know, because the amount of data that would need to be run and then processed to make this happen. But you could have whole traffic jams be turned into traffic flows. If, if all the self-driving cars link up and they're networking, right? They're networking. So if they're all moving in unison, if they're all moving in unison, there's, there's no more traffic jams because some ass who wasn't paying attention. Now everybody on the road is your bumper to bumper, but you're all cruising along at 40, 45 miles an hour instead of uh, 20 miles for like two seconds before you hit the next jam and you're just sitting there in bumper to bumper traffic, not moving. Like, that'd be a revolution in transportation. That'd be a revolution for people who have to commute to work. Now, and I, I had to commute to work when I had this one job, and it was only like 15 to 20 minutes away. And I say 15 to 20 because it, it depended on how people were driving that day. <laughs> but it, the daily commute was stressful especially when people just did not know how to drive I'm like oh my goodness uh, you'd see an open lane and you, you think you got to go and then some guy pops out from the other lane just to go the same speed as the people he was behind and it's like get out of my way bro <laughs> but imagine instead of everyone going 20 then 40 then back to 30 then you're going 45 60 uh, uh you're back to you're back to 25 now instead of that instead of a, you can have a continuous flow maybe 40, 45, maybe even 60 miles an hour the entire way through. The entire way through. You could have that with self-driving cars. With And it's a potential. If we use the technology for something good, great things can come from that. Imagine the reductions in stress for people up to commute to work. Imagine the ability to transport goods on shorter timescales because you're not dealing with traffic. Like you forget a big city. There's traffic even in small towns of a, just a few tens of thousands of people. Imagine if you abolish the traffic jam. Because imagine you're not just synchronizing and coordinating the movements of the cars themselves, but the lights, the traffic lights. And you get this, this essentially this beating heart. Like an artery. You this and and this is a, perhaps a really really complex uh superstructure that i'm imagining here this super coordinated uh digital structure here so th this again this will probably take like 6g to even pull off feasibly like uh, i'll be honest with you but it, it's a possibility and then you could have the lights coordinated with the movement of the cars so that every car will stop at the light and every car, when the light turns green, will move instead of people sitting there on their phone for five seconds because they weren't paying attention. Imagine the reductions in car accidents and how many people, how many lives, how many lives you could save from that. Imagine all the great things that could come. Imagine the quality of life improvement. Imagine you're, you're driving, you, you type in the GPS on the car. All right, time to go. And then you, and this is probably going to be like a luxury feature in future cars, you you rotate your seat. You're in the driver's seat, but you rotate the seat. So now you're, you're looking backwards at the people in the back seat, 
now you guys are uh, are playing cards. As a matter of fact, you're playing Uno. You're you're getting upset at the at the dude while you're playing Monopoly because he gave over Boardwalk to the guy who had enough money to buy a, a hotel, and now you're all going bankrupt because you keep landing on that spot. Imagine that. We could do great things with self-driving cars. If only, if only we had the right people and the right mindset. It's all about mindset. Technology is only going to do what you allow it to do. Technology is only going to do what you choose to do with it. You can do a great many things with technology. And we can do great with this technology. And that's just self-driving cars. Imagine you have... And we're looking at this electric vehicle thing. These people want us to have all electric so we can't fucking go anywhere. You, you get two hours of driving, all, three hours of driving, all, uh, 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 and you have to sit there at the charging station for a couple hours. Okay, well, forget all electric. Let's go hybrid. Hybrid vehicles where you combine the internal combustion engine with electric cars. Now that's power. You're talking savings and gas, saving, and wherever the gas doesn't go, wherever you're not using the gas, you're using the electricity from the battery. But the motor can power the battery up again. And you get this almost perpetual motion machine. It would still take gas, but perhaps you could have reductions in the usage of gas using hybrid vehicles. And more mileage out of it anyway. Like, that would be a revolution. And in the quality, well, Actually, it wouldn't be a revolution, but it would be a really solid quality of life improvement. If you could get more mileage out of your car, because your car was switching between gas and electric. Great things you can do instead of trapping people within the 15-minute city. And you have this fear of automation. Now, Jeff Bezos isn't afraid of automation. Bill Gates isn't afraid of automation. Your senators and congressmen aren't afraid of automation. You don't think you don't think an AI can trade a stock better than these people? Does does what's his name? I forget the name that invested. He's the guy who owns a Berkshire Hathaway. But you think he's afraid of AI? You, you don't think an AI can trade a stock better than him? It can. In fact, it already does. These people use AI to trade the stocks for them. You don't think AI could run and manage a logistic business like Amazon better than Amazon's CEO? I bet they already use AI to make their lives easier. We could be using AI to make our lives easier. We could be using machines to make our lives easier. We already do. They want us to be afraid of automation. Go to any restaurant where you can see behind the counter and look at all those machines they have at work. The... Did the worker just get abolished by all those machines? No. There were new jobs that needed to be done. And it, having those machines made the jobs of the people working there far easier than if they had to go for go flip the burger themselves. Than if they had to go and go keep the fire going. If you needed a coal boy to keep the fire running in the heater, the heating room. Like the technology make this easier. Like cash register, you have the digital cash register. Instead of having someone sit there and count all the money, it, oh, oh, you use your card and the transaction is done for you. 
Like these technologies don't have to be the end of us. They can be great for us. It only takes the right mindset and we can have some dramatic quality of life improvements with technologies that we already have available to us and are just going to improve from this point onwards. Imagine how many, imagine industrialization, how many industries we could have in the United States with machines instead of needing manual labor. We could compete with China, a country with nearly five times our population. We can compete with them in industrial output using machines, using AI, using the latest technologies. Look at high-end Chinese factories. They're already doing it. We could be doing that. We could have it all. And it would be great for us. And it would only take the right mindset. But that, my lovely listeners, is all I have for you today. Finally, after the extensive episode, I do hope you've enjoyed today's broadcast on my geopolitical podcast. I hope I've been just a tad bit more insightful this time around with my all those ideas I had on my mind that I wanted to get off my chest. And I hope perhaps I've impacted your way of thinking about some of these things that we've talked about today on this episode. But mm, BRICS is making a currency. And we can see that the world is, in fact, changing. It's changing rapidly, in fact. So fast that I might wake up tomorrow and we'll be in the isolationist America of my dreams. But (laughs) either way it goes, either way it goes, we will have fun watching that change together. Now, I've been your host, Tyshawn Wade, and you've been listening to This Week in Geopolitics. So till we meet again next Monday... Servus.